nice. He's got a nice, happy sermon for you this morning. So to understand this text and what we've been what we've been talking about, I think it's important for us to discuss what where we've been in this book. I want to spend some time kind of setting setting the scene for us to understand what this word means to the people of Israel and what this means for us. So Isaiah has spent the first five chapters uttering words of judgment and calls for the people to turn from their wicked ways. And in chapter 6, he gets this mind-blowing revelation of the Lord. The Lord reveals himself as king of Israel, even in the wake of the death of King Uzziah. And in this revelation, Isaiah is also told something very disturbing. That judgment is coming for the people of Israel and Judah for their idolatry, for their oppression of the poor, and for their political treason against their Lord. And there's nothing that they can do to stop it. And not only is there nothing that, that they can do to stop it, but Isaiah is supposed to be the messenger of that impending doom. And a remnant is going to remain, that is, there are going to be some people left over, but not until after the purifying fire of the Lord has stripped the people of all the things that they are tempted to place their faith and trust in. And this gets originally signaled in chapter 7. So Judah is facing a recent attack from Aram and, and the northern kingdom, so, so two of their northern neighbors. These these neighbors attack Jerusalem, but they're not able to take it. Now, even if you suffer an unsuccessful attack, that's a very very stressful reality to be in. I'm 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 sure we'd all be stressed out if somebody tried to break into our house. But in this but in this situation, somebody's not just trying to break into your house. Somebody's trying to break into your house, take over your house with you still in it. The Lord is telling them that. That, that, that these northern neighbors are planning regime change. They're planning to split Judah apart amongst themselves and to set up a puppet king. In other words, they're planning to do with the people of God what European powers and their greed and hunger for power plan to do with Africa at the Berlin Conference in 1885. Split it up for themselves through violent colonial means. They're planning to do what our country did in its greed and hungry for power in Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, and Panama. That is actively support violent regime change, often to those more sympathetic to U.S. business interests. And in the wake of that fear, the Lord, however, has a word of comfort for the people. He tells them not to fear, and he gives them specifics. In chapter 7, in chapter seven verses 8 and 9, he tells them, the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is just resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom, will be too shattered to be a people. And then verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. In other words, the capital, the capital of the northern kingdom is this city, Samaria. Their king, resin. The capital of Aram is the city called Damascus. Their king, so on. What he's saying here is, Judah, think about what your capital city is. Your capital city is Jerusalem. Well, what's significant about Jerusalem? The temple is there. Who's the king of the temple? It's not this human king. It's the Lord. Why are you so worried about these human kings that say that they're in charge? When I am. But the Lord goes on to tell Ahaz through Isaiah how he would act. The Lord tells him that he's going to use Assyria, the big empire that that everybody's afraid of, to take Aram and the northern kingdom off the map. That's what, that's what chapter 8, verse 4 is saying. Before the child, Emmanuel was old enough to speak, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria would be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now the right response to this would have been to thank the Lord. 
its true king. But the book of 2 Kings tells us that that ain't what happens. Instead, what Ahaz does is he, he sends messengers to the king of Assyria. He takes gold out of the temple of the Lord and brings it to the king of Assyria and begs him to help. 2 Kings 16.7 gives this image of groveling. Ahaz comes to him and says, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. In doing so, Ahaz seals the fate of his people. And Isaiah 8 outlines what that fate is. Isaiah 8, 6 to 8. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the, of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. Shiloh was the spring that provided water to the city of Jerusalem. And it's, and it's meant to represent God's constant provision for his people. But instead of trusting in that clean, fresh water, the people ran for the lead-contaminated water of Assyria. Instead of trusting the gentle, normal, nourishing water of, of Shiloh, they went for the shiny, spectacular water of Assyria. Now I mean these things symbolically, but I also want us to think about these natural images literally. God gave the people physical, daily reminders of his provision for them. Specifically this spring. Every time you get water from this spring, you're supposed to be reminded, hey, this is water from the Lord. There's a great, there's a great gospel song called The Lord is Blessing Me by Bishop Larry Trotter. And you hear, that, you hear that title and you think, oh, this is going to be a song that we're, where it's just repeating these, 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 these lavish things that the Lord has done to provide for us. But there are actually only two things that are named in that song. It's that the Lord woke me up this morning and started me on my way. That's it. Like That's the, that's the main, that's the only thing that the, that, that, that the Lord is thanked for in this song. It's an entire song of worship because the Lord woke me up this morning. And started me on my way. There's something that we can all learn from, from, the, from the black ecclesial tradition. That is joy at every moment of the Lord's provision. And Judah should have seen that. In the waters of Shiloh. But instead they ran to the big bad empire. And so God decided to let the empire do what empires do. Conquer, enslave, exploit, and exile. Verses 11 to 22 are then addressed to those who are left over. Isaiah's first son's name is Shir Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. That is, there are going to be some people among the people who are going to be faithful to the Lord. And Isaiah is one of them. And what's the Lord's word to these folks? Verse 12 and 13, in their simplicity, summarize the Lord's words to his people. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary or a holy place. Verse 12 can also be translated, don't, don't make a treaty every time someone calls for a treaty. Don't make deals every time somebody offers a deal. That could be a mantra for anybody who's in the legal profession here. <laughs> But what he's telling the people is that they, through their lives, are going to be threatened 
And people are going to attempt to make them make decisions out of fear. But if they focus their attention on the Lord, the one who has promised to provide for them, then they'll be free from the constricting power of terror. It's one, it's one of the things that terror does. It, 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 narrows, it narrows our vision. This is what he says in verses 19 to 20. When, when, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. So don't, don't look to other religious voices or voices claiming to be sources of ultimate moral truth when the Lord has graciously provided all that you need in his word. He's telling you and telling his people to be a people founded on the foundation of his testimony. He freed them from slavery. Do they think that he would forsake them completely? He made an everlasting covenant with his people. Do they think that he would break it? Then the people should have lived in that security rather than the manufactured security of imperial military might. But if that's what Judah was going through, what about us? What might it mean for the Christian in America, or more particularly for us, us Christians in Waco, Texas, do the Lord's words ring in our ears as they ought to have rung in the ears of Judah? Do not fear what these people fear, and do not dread. The question is, what, what do people fear? The five most common phobias are arachnophobia, fear of spiders, ophidiophobia, fear of snakes, acrophobia, fear of heights, Aerophobia, fear of flying, and cynophobia, fear of dogs. Now, all of those are completely legit. See, the thing about, the thing about phobias is that they're supposed to be, like, not rational. All of those are rational. All of them can kill you. <laughs> and this is where most of our fear comes from. Fear of death and suffering. And it's especially pressing for us in our day because of, the most prom because of one of the most prominent of these powers and principalities that we have to face. And the name of this power principality, you probably know what it is, <laughs> starts with the C and ends with an capitalism. <laughs> and, 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 and not just any. So there are, there are three adjectives that are going to precede it every time that I talk about this with the people of God. It's racialized. That is, it's built especially but not exclusively on the exploitation of non-white folks. And their definition as such. It's financialized because global finance runs the world. The third one might be a new one. It's, neo it's neoliberal. That is, the goal is to put market dictated competition at the center of our social lives. That is, we are to be constantly fighting one another to survive. The freedom in the word neoliberal, because liberal is from liber, meaning, meaning free, is not to us being free. It's to our commerce being free. That is, we're free to be enslaved to our consumerism. <laughs> this is the weekend to say that, too. This is the biggest spending weekend <laughs> of the year. Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Isn't that dark, to be free to be enslaved to your consumerism? But do you ever think about how dark the world really is? How close to death you are 
all the time? How precarious your existence is? We hear about mass shootings almost weekly, and who's often victimized? LGBTQ folks, children, people of color, those whom society has left relatively defenseless. Think about the working world. If you're, if you're a white-collar worker, your, your job performance benchmarks are often going to depend on people around you, so that means if you fall behind the curve, then you get replaced. But to stay on the curve, you have to constantly work harder and harder and harder, and at some point, you're going to give out and burn out. It's not just true about white-collar workers. It's, it's got all of us. Theologian Adam Kotzko defines our current culture this way. We have to be in a constant state of high alert, always hustling for opportunities and connections, always planning for every contingency. This requires us to fritter away our, life with, our, our life with worry and paperwork and supplication, pitching ourselves over and over again, building our personal brand, all for ever-lowering wages or a smattering of piecework which barely covers increasingly exorbitant rent, much less student loan payment. You know what the poverty line is for a single individual in this country? $13,600 a year, which is $1,133 a month. That's a... $1,133 a month? Can you survive on that? It's essentially a death sentence, and this is what, and this is what hovers over all of us as the possibility. If we lose our jobs, we die. I, I, I have these conversations with, with colleagues in universities, folks with PhDs, who, 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 when, 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 when these institutions meet financial pressure and have to lay folks off, that kind of fear is paralyzing. It's happening in a number of industries across the country. And all of this creates an atmosphere of fear that ultimately boils down to a fear of death. And yet it is precisely that kind of fear that keeps neoliberal capitalism running. Because none of us want, well, none of us want to work ourselves to death, but many of us do because we have to. Another pastoral theologian and psychotherapist, uh, Bruce, Bruce Rogers Vaughn, tells us that our current political economy actually introduced to humanity a new kind of constant suffering. A third order of suffering. So all, all human civilizations have had to deal with the first two. So the first one is just kind of sufferings that are common to all human beings. We're talking about things like death, things like grief, separation, illness, pain, all of these things that are just common to the entire human experience. The second order of suffering are the things that human beings do to each other. We're talking about assault, abuse, war, all of these kinds of things. But the third is actually unique to a society as individualistic and disconnected as ours. Rogers Vaughan names a few things that characterize this kind of suffering. Diffuse depression. Amorphous anxiety. Fluid addictions. Indefinable but intense shame. These are things that affect us in ways that we can't quite name. This is the lingering voice that tells you that you, you need to work harder and longer, even if it kills you and your family. This is the voice that tells you that if you don't occupy every minute of your child's time with extracurricular activities, they won't make it into the college that they need to be in to have a fulfilling life. It's, it's, it's this voice that tells you that if you don't look out for you, nobody else will. These are actually demonic voices. 
These are voices that lead us to where the people of God were in the end of Isaiah 8, in chapter 8, in verses 21 and 22, where it says, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. This is the end of a life that is built on fear. But not the fear of the Lord. You see, to the contrary, the Lord says through Isaiah, do not fear what they fear. And do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. That might be a little too rich for your blood. Maybe you think all this fear talk is Old Testament God stuff. Nope, it's Jesus too. <laughs> You see, the Lord has had a plan for this world from the very beginning. The plan has been to redeem it. And the true Emmanuel, God, God with us, Jesus Christ, told his disciples what Isaiah told the people of God. In Matthew 10, 28, he told them, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, brothers and sisters, and this is going to sound weird, but it's what the scriptures say. Christ's salvation does not remove from you the fear of death. Death is still unknown. It's dark. It's looming over us in a way that we desperately try to fend off. This is one of the reasons why we sequester the elderly and the, and the sickly, because, because it reminds us of where, where we will be. But what did Christ come to do? Why did he die? Why did he take on flesh? Those are questions that we should ask the scriptures. And, the, and they answer it in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. What we're told, the author of Hebrews says, is since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. One author says it this way. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the mastery of it. That is, the fear of death may be present in the Christian, but we are no longer enslaved to it. Our regular decisions must not be dictated by it. That's what slavery is. That's what God has in trouble. He was afraid of death and of oppression, and so he reached out to somebody who appeared to be closer at hand than the Lord who had provided for him his entire life. And this is what guides many of our decisions, brothers and sisters, fear of death. Where is that true for you? What have you put up with because of your fear? What have you continued to do because you fear that if you stop, you'll die? If there's one thing that I want you to know is that if you are a Christian, if you have been united to Christ by faith, by the hope, by, by the means of the Holy Spirit, you have been freed from the slavery to that fear. Your life is in the hands of the Lord, and his hands are quite capable. Instead, we have to redirect that energy. We don't even need to ask the question, what will happen to me if I obey the Lord in this area of my life? The answer is, whatever needs to happen to me, and the Lord is going to be with me through it. Like Ahaz and the people, it's, it's mind-numbingly easy to ignore the gentle waters of Shiloh, and to, seek the neo and to seek the choppy and stressful waters of neoliberal capitalism that seek to flood our senses and tell us this is the only way to live. Compete. 
Beat out your neighbor so that you can get so that you can get ahead. There is another way. The way of the kingdom of God. But in order to be a citizen of this kingdom, the Lord requires two things. That you repent and believe. And repentance requires turning. Not just, not just kind of turning, turning a little bit. No, a relentless turning, a lifetime of turning, a lifetime of seeking the face of the Lord and going where he bids you go, depending on his provision and the people whom he's called to walk alongside you. It means believing that Jesus Christ is Lord, the true king who rules now, and that God raised him from the dead to vindicate him and to set him on the throne forever and ever. It means that you know that Jesus relativizes every one of your human endeavors and relationships. He reorients them all to himself, and he allows none of them to rule. And he wants you to be his. He wants you to cling to him like my daughter Junia clings to my wife Desiree. She's the only one who can calm her down. Why? Because she's got food. <laughs> Junia's utterly dependent on Desiree for food. And she, and, and she may be, she might be held by other people for like a few minutes, but then she'll start freaking out and crying. I, her loving father, with whom she shares 50% of her DNA, I pick her up and she cries. Why? Because I don't have what she needs. This is how attached God wants us to be to God's self. That we would know that the gentle waters of Shaloha are all that we need. And if strange people try to pick us up, we make a fuss and run back to our real He wants your family to be his. He wants your words to be his. He wants your work to be about him. Not in a weird way where like every job is just you talking about Jesus all the time. But in the, but in the sense that our work is a cooperation with the Lord of the universe in remaking the world into what he intends it to be. He wants you in your entirety. And he wants to shape you into the image of his son. He wants you to love like he does. He wants you to sacrifice like he did. He wants you to rejoice like he did. He wants you to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control like he did. And many of us are going to hear that. We're going to think, well, I'm, I'm nothing like that. I haven't done a quarter of those things. Yeah. We're in Advent. We're waiting. The Spirit is still working, and we can only, sometimes we can only see seeds of it. The people of God, after, after Assyria came down on them, they faced centuries of colonial and imperial rule. The human race has come under colonial rule, under the rule of sin, death, and the devil. This is the language that Paul uses when he refers to them as powers. It's this, it's this image of, a, of, a, of an invading force. And the reign of sin, death, and the devil is as brutal as the indigenous genocide that this country was built on that we conveniently try to ignore on Thanksgiving. We live in what appears often to us to be deep darkness. And you can't even run to the church sometimes because that, that darkness has, has seeped even into, our, even into our walls in its darkest forms. And yet, the voice of the Spirit still calls with the words of our Savior that the kingdom of God has come and is coming. That the day is coming and is now here. The already and the not yet. That Jesus rules here, now, and the day is coming that we will eager, that we eagerly await when that rule will be visibly cosmic. 
But for now, we groan. And the creation groans along with us. The animals groan. The elements of creation that we mercilessly exploit because of our political economy groan. We're all waiting. Next week, we're going to see a vision of the one that we're waiting for. But for this week, I want us to consider this. In your waiting, in your eager waiting, take care that you do not sin in your impatience. Though death may knock at your door and breathe on your neck, you owe it nothing. Christ has paid your debt. You need be enslaved to that fear no longer. I skipped over some verses earlier to come back to them now. Verses 9 and 10. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. These are the words that the people of Judah should have said in response to military threat. But this is what we must say and how we must live in the face of the defeated powers and principalities. Because nobody can, utter, can ultimately defeat those who are united to Christ. Scheme all you want, sin, death, and the devil. Because you're not up against us. You're up against the love of the triune God. And we know that, 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 and we know this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, if, if you have been united to Christ by faith, you are no longer enslaved to the fear of death. Do not fear what these people fear, nor dread what they dread. It is the Lord who we fear. It is the Lord who we seek. It is the Lord who we love, and it is the Lord who we follow. And he and his word will lead us not to destruction, but to true and total liberation. Let's pray.